Well, let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that so often uh, we can feel like we are sliding towards a pit. We can feel like our lives um, are arid, even when we've known you for so long. And yet we thank you for your word and we pray that you would refresh us now as we come to it. We pray that you would help us. Please show us more of your son and that we might have confidence in him and in all that he has done for us. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, Now this could get me into trouble, um, but uh, let me ask the kids a question. Have you ever been in a food fight? Um, I'm sure that you're all so uh, well behaved that you've never even dreamed of throwing uh, food, your dinner, your uh, lunch, your breakfast at uh, a member of your family. I'm sure that's true, is that, isn't that right? Uh, when I was a boy, one of my favorite films was uh, the film Hook. And maybe you've uh, seen that film. And in, in that film, there's an amazing scene where um, uh, a grown-up Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, uh, they have an amazing food fight. And uh, they get absolutely covered um, in food. And there's something about food... Something about eating together that can often uh, lead to trouble. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many times have you seen people fall out at a big meal? Um, Maybe there's really high expectations. Maybe it's Christmas or something like that. There's amazing food. And then somebody says something or somebody brings something up. And it is all spoiled. Um, Food and fighting, um, they often go together. And our passage in Galatians tonight, it was written, it was written really because of a squabble over food. But unlike the, the fights that we sometimes have, this one, it really had to happen. And so tonight, as we look at this passage, I want us to see three Uh, things. And the first verses 11 to 14 is the denial of faith, the denial of faith. And it's often said that Galatians is a bit like a trilogy. So um, chapters uh, breaks into three parts. So chapters one and two are history or or biography. Chapters three and four are, are more theology. And then chapters 5 and 6 are morality or ethics, how we should live. And verses 11 to 14 of um, chapter 2, they start the very end of of that first section, the first course, we might say. Paul has been um, sharing his biography, um, and he refuses to edit out this awkward incident. And that is, by the way, one of the reasons that we can have confidence in the Bible, because it doesn't whitewash the account. Men like Peter were imperfect, just like you and me. And one of the things that we can be very concerned about often is our status in the eyes of other people. Uh, the writer Alan de Botton, he calls this status anxiety. Um, It is amplified, isn't it, by social media. But for all sorts of reasons, you and I are often concerned about how we appear 
to others. And this, it seems, was an issue for Peter. He was someone who appeared very confident. And we know that, don't we, if we read uh, the Gospels. And yet under the surface, well, there was fear. And there was a need to please other people. He was full, we might say, of pride and prejudice. I think we see that in this uh, passage tonight, pride and prejudice. And the location of his sin, it mattered. Um, Antioch, which is is uh, mentioned in verse 11. By the way, Cephas is just another name for um, Peter. Antioch was the place that followers of Jesus were first called Christians. It was um, a Gentile city too. It was somewhere that Peter um, would have steered clear of in the past. But maybe you can remember in Acts chapter 10 that he learned that God showed no partiality. Because of what Jesus had done, he was now free to eat with those who didn't share his Jewish roots. And in the Christian family, everyone ate at the same table. And it's very clear that Peter embraced this. We can imagine him in in Antioch, maybe trying food that he's uh, never eaten before, um, laughing with his brothers and sisters, praising God at the beginning of the meal, thanking him for, for the unity that they now had in Christ. But then there was a change. A group from James arrive at verse 12, and he abandons this practice. He pulls back from these non-kosher Christians, and he goes and sits and eats at a different table. And as is always the case, because God's people are connected, because they are part of a body, this individual sin, well, it has corporate consequences. Um, Other people see what he's done, verse 13. They copy him. And even Barnabas, the Mr. Encourager, even he um, is led astray. And when Paul hears about this, he doesn't think, well, Peter's done a lot for the church. Uh, Peter's adjusting to a big change. He doesn't think this is, well, it's a small issue. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. No, this public sin has to be challenged in public. It can't be dealt with by a private chat. No, in view of everyone, Paul opposes him. And then he writes about it so that we can read about it tonight. And Peter was acting fearfully. He was acting hypocritically. The word means actor. Peter was playing a part. How he behaved was a denial of what he actually believed. And as Paul puts it in verse 14, it was not in line with the truth of the gospel. You see, just try to imagine sitting at the table Peter left. What would have been going through your mind? Are we good enough? Peter ate with Jesus. He used to eat with us. And now he won't. Maybe maybe we need to be a little bit more Jewish, a little bit more like him to really fit in. 
Now, Peter had turned his back on Jesus uh, before, hadn't he? And I think there are real parallels with this incident. But this time, he turns his back not just on Jesus. He turns his back on his fellow believers. He denies that their faith is genuine. I wonder if we uh, are ever guilty of doing that. Do we create barriers between ourselves and other Christians that uh, Jesus died for? Maybe we create barriers with Christians we think of as more traditional than us. Their uh, worship or attitudes or dress seems too formal. Or maybe it's with those who seem more modern, their worship or attitudes or dress uh, seem a little bit relaxed. Christians are free to disagree on all manner of issues, aren't they? But how do we treat brothers and sisters who take maybe a slightly different view on something to us? Do we love them? How do we speak about them? Do we give the impression that they are less Christian than us. We may not be tempted by circumcision. I don't think any of us will be. But we can be tempted to trust other signs of apparent superiority. Unity matters. And if Paul hadn't challenged Peter here, a two tier Christianity would have developed. Let's watch. For that too. I think these verses, they also teach us that no Christian is above rebuke. And we all need to be careful, don't we? We all need to make sure we don't deny the faith. Even someone like Peter had to be challenged here. And in challenging him, what Paul was doing was exactly what he had said back in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Peter wasn't doing this with his lips so much, was he? But with his life. And we need to ask God to keep us, to help us, stop us from doing the same. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. We see the denial of faith. Second thing that we see is the logic of faith, verses 15 to 19, the logic of faith. And now kids, some of you are here tonight, and maybe logic is a word that if you're a little bit older, you might have heard of. It means, if you don't know, it means that something is really clear. Um, logic means that something makes sense. And uh, let me give you an example. So if I um, eat lots and lots of Easter eggs, um, Easter eggs are really cheap right now, aren't they? Um, the logical thing that will happen is what? Um, yeah, I will need to go and see Mr. and Mrs. Ewart, get my teeth uh, checked out. Isn't that right? Um, and Peter had acted Illogically, that's the opposite of um, being logical. Um, we, Peter had done something that didn't make sense. And we see this in verse uh, 15. Uh, Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth 
and not Gentile sinners. In other words, Peter, you and I, we had a great privilege. We were born into God's covenant family. And yet, Paul says, and yet we know, that's the key phrase, that a person is not justified by works of the law. We are not made right with God by what we do. So, Peter, how could you think you could be? Peter, you have taught the opposite of this. By works of the law, no one, you know this, no one will be justified. Uh, Justified is is the big word in uh, this section, verses 15 to 19. Um, It should be there in uh, in neon lights in in your Bible. It's four times uh, in this section. Three times in verse 16 and once in verse 17. Justified. Um, Sometimes we can think uh, that we don't really need um, big words like that um, in the Christian life. Uh, Don't we just all love Jesus, that kind of thing? But words like justified, words like justification, they have been given to us by God to help us understand what he has done for us. When we become Christians, there is a vocabulary to learn. And justification is one of those words. Now, what does it mean? Uh, Well, this week, um, uh, a friend of mine, he told me that he was going to be on jury duty soon. Uh, I don't know if anyone has ever done um, jury duty. I was um, almost picked for jury duty. I got into the the room. They they took uh, things out of the, the, um, I was going to say hat. Um, They picked the names uh, and I didn't uh, get chosen. But justification... Justification is a word that comes from the law court. And justification is a legal term. And to be justified is to be declared righteous, in the clear, not guilty by God. To be justified, if you're a Christian tonight, it doesn't mean that we feel righteous. Um, Often as Christians, we are very conscious of our failures. I think that the norm in the Christian life is not to be kind of less aware of our sin as we uh, get older, but to be more aware of our sin. To be justified doesn't mean that we feel righteous. It is to be declared righteous in the clear, not guilty by God. Sometimes we say, or people say things like this, justification, it means um, something like this, just as if I'd never sinned. Has anyone ever said that to you? That sounds good, doesn't it? It's very memorable, just as if I'd never sinned. But justification, let me say this really clearly, justification is even better than that. You see, it is not that God just wipes the slate clean and then waits for you and I to trip ourselves up and sin again. No, God counts us righteous in Christ. 
When we put our trust in Jesus, we get what uh, Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. That is, a righteousness from outside of us. A righteousness that is from somebody else, from Christ. And so he doesn't take us, if I can put it like this, from um, minus to zero. No, he takes us from minus to zero to positive. To be justified is to be clothed in his righteousness, to have his perfect moral record. And that is you tonight. That is me tonight. If our trust, if we have put our trust in him. Listen to how Martin Luther put it in a letter to a friend. He said this, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to praise him and despairing of yourself, say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness, just as I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what was mine and have given to me what is yours? Colin um, alluded to this in his prayer. Maybe you can see why Luther, he called this the wonderful exchange. Because in the gospel, what Jesus has done is he has, he has taken our sin and given us his righteousness, his record. And sometimes we get confused when we uh, mix up the ideas of, of justification and sanctification. And sanctification is the, is the process by which we become more holy over time. And God's spirit works in us to make us more like him. But justification, justification is the last day brought forward. Justification is a great rock that you can stand on as a Christian. It is something that will never change. All of us have ups and downs in our Christian lives. And yet, as Paul says in Romans, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, he is our only hope. By works of the law, no one will be justified. As we sang in um, Psalm 143 just a few moments ago, no one living is righteous before you. But God has provided a way for us to be so. We are made right with him by faith in his son. He obeyed God's law perfectly for us. And I said at the beginning um, of uh, Galatians, this series, that it would give us reasons to sing. And justification by faith is the kind of theology that always leads to uh, doxology, to worship. But maybe you can see, maybe you can anticipate some questions that people might have about it or questions that you might uh, have about it. And Paul, I think, he faces some of these in uh, verse 17 and following. This is quite a, a tricky section. Um, so if your neighbor is um, nodding off, give them an elbow. And uh, let's have a close look at this uh, section together. 
And the accusation that was being made about, uh, towards Paul went something like this. Paul, with all your focus on, on justification, the danger with that, Paul, well, it's that you're going to start promoting sin. Not only that, you're going around telling people that they can be right with God by faith. But Paul, we know you. We know that you still sin. So what does that actually say about Christ? Justification by faith, that is too dangerous to talk about. Paul, things would be so much safer if you just put the focus back on to people. If you just told them to keep the rules. And what is Paul's answer? Certainly not, verse 17. And his sin after he trusts Christ is not caused by his faith. It, no, it proves his need for grace. He used to be proud of his religious pedigree and obedience, but he no longer relies on it. And in verse 18, he compares that old way of thinking to, to a wall or to a building. And he says it has been demolished. It has been torn down by the gospel. And so he can't rebuild it. If he did, if he tried to make um, law-keeping a way of being right with God now, well, then all that would do is just prove that he is a sinner. As he goes on to say in verse 19, he no longer considers himself under the law's power, no longer holds him captive. He used to put his confidence in it, but not anymore. We're going to see Paul talk more about um, the law in, in chapter 3 and following. So we'll come back to, to some of these things. And yet what's really interesting is that one of the commentators points out that Paul's phrasing in verse 19, it is quite counterintuitive. Paul says it was through the law that he died to the law. Through the law that he died to the law. I don't know about you, I would expect him to say something like through the gospel or, or through grace or by understanding God's grace. That was when I died to the law. That was when I, I saw that it was not a way of being right with God. Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean? I think the best answer is to remember that God's law, it came with a penalty. And we'll see more of this uh, next week. And failing to keep God's law resulted in death. And Paul knew that this was what he deserved. As he reflected on things, he, he realized he couldn't keep the law. Paul came to see that he needed someone to live um, the life that he should have lived and die the death that he should have died. And the wonderful thing is that this is exactly what has happened. This is what Paul discovered when he put his trust in Jesus, that he was saved by God's grace. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of us tonight. We can have confidence, we can have confidence because of what Christ 
has done. We've seen um, the threat, the denial uh, of faith. We've seen the logic of faith. The last thing I want us to see tonight is the wonder of faith. Verses 20 and 21, the wonder of faith. And this is really important because sometimes when Christians are, uh, Christians use words like justification. Sometimes they're accused of having um, an impersonal or a, or a cold relationship with God. The, the legal language that is very important, that can make some people think that it is cold. But can you see how intimate how close, how, how wonderful Paul's relationship with Christ is in, in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, the doctrine Paul's describing here is union with Christ. It's used throughout the New Testament to describe what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. And scattered through the previous verses are lots of references to it. So just look at verses 16 and 17. Paul has, speaks about having faith in Christ. Um, he talks about believing or those who have believed in Christ. He is justified in Christ. And to be a Christian is to be in him, in Christ, united to him, folded into him, and never to be separated from him. Now you and I, we use this um, union language um, every day. Imagine that you're watching uh, the Six Nations or the World Cup, or something like that. What do you say if Scotland win? If you're Scottish, you don't say, maybe, well, maybe you say that was a surprise. If you're Scottish, you don't say, Scotland won, do you? No, you say, we won. And even if you've never picked up um, a rugby ball in your life, there is a sense in which you and I are in them. Their victory is our victory. Or maybe um, you're listening to the radio in the morning uh, while you're eating your toast and you hear uh, the Prime Minister say that today Britain is going to do X, Y, or Z. And whether you agree with him or not, um, you and I, we are all kind of caught up, bound up in that action because he represents us. And it is a little bit like um, union with Christ. We are in him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, he is in us too. I wonder, do you see how this idea, how this union with Christ, how it um, deepens our understanding of the cross, how it deepens our understanding of our relationship with Jesus. Um, an old hymn asks this question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And Paul would say, absolutely. We are united to him by faith. And that means that when he died, we died. We were nailed to the cross with him. 
as he died, the penalty required by the law, namely death, that was paid in full. And friends, the wonderful thing is that it never needs to be paid again. When Christ died, we died. We were united to him by faith. And yet Paul goes even further. He has died, he says, and yet he now lives just as Christ does. And he is so united to him that he says, even though I'm alive, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My identity, my existence is totally bound up with him. I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus, my faithful Savior. I think what Paul is speaking about in verse 20, it's so counter cultural, isn't it? Our culture is obsessed with the idea of self-discovery. Understanding ourselves can be a really good thing, knowing um, our gifts, maybe knowing our temperament, our weaknesses. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet often the journey to find the real me, well, so often it is just feeding the monster of narcissism, isn't it? But what did Jesus say? How do we find our lives? Well, he says, by losing them. And yet, the wonderful thing about following the one who made us is that you and I are most truly ourselves when we do that, when we die to ourselves, when we die to live. And so maybe you can see how union with Christ, how it it blows out of the water the idea that we would now be free to sin. John Stott, as always, he puts it really well. It is not that we cannot sin, but we do not want to. That's you tonight. That's me tonight if we love Jesus, isn't it? He goes on, the whole tenor of our life has changed Everything is different now because we ourselves are different. As Paul says, we live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. If you're a Christian, you can make these words your own. Jesus didn't tolerate you. Jesus didn't come just to put up with you. No, he loved us. He loved you. And how did he love you? Well, look what Paul says, by giving himself for you. And when did he love you? Well, think of Paul. Um, He died for him when he was God's enemy. Or think of Peter. He died for him just as he was betraying him. This is the grace that God has shown each of us. And it means that you and I, we should never treat another Christian as an enemy. We should never think of them as, as less important than us or, or beneath us. To do so is to, to nullify the grace of God. To run back to works is to say that Christ died for nothing. 
But he didn't die for nothing, did he? No, he died for you. He died for me. He died for all who would put their trust in him. And you and I, we are brothers and sisters in him. And we will feast forever with him. So let's pray together now. Let's pray.